Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Shlom. One of our most precious resources is, of course, water. Here in California, where this program is produced, battles over water are as ingrained in the state psyche as the proverbial warm California sun. In this program, we'll take an in-depth look at groundwater, the water that lies literally beneath our feet. We'll be joined by UC Davis Professor Emeritus of Hydrogeology and one of the world's leading experts on groundwater, Graham Fogg. Fogg will tell us about special places where groundwater could be more effectively stored and recharged during times of flood, like the recent series of atmospheric river storms that pummeled the state in December and early January. Later on in the show, we'll find out about how NASA monitors groundwater from space using the GRACE satellite from project scientist Felix Landerer. But our first guest is a journalist who first brought Graham Fogg's work to my attention through articles she's written and her book, Water Always Wins. Erica Guys joined us to talk a bit about the big picture of groundwater and Dr. Fogg in particular. Erica Guys, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm very interested in your work on water issues, but specifically for this program on groundwater. How did you first get to get interested in groundwater and connect with uh, Dr. Graham Fogg from uh, UC Davis? Well, I am a journalist who has long focused on science and the environment, and I'm also uh, born and raised in California. So like many of the state's residents, I have long been aware of water, water issues. And the more I learned about it, the more intrigued I got. Water is just so fascinating and it gets up to so many different things. And, you know, groundwater has always been a big deal in the state because typically when we have drought, people like to pump groundwater. And you know, people have kind of had this uh, willful misinterpretation that groundwater and surface water are separate water, but in fact, they are the same water, they're connected. And when you pump groundwater and the water table drops, then um, you're interfering with a, a really beautiful system where water from underneath the ground actually supplies rivers and streams and wetlands from below. So, uh, you know, historically, we, we tend to think of streams in the West as seasonal, you know, they only run during the winter. But in fact, a lot of our streams used to run year round, and it was because they were supplied by this healthy groundwater table. Yeah. And then how did you first become aware of Graham Fogg and his work? Yeah. So as as I was doing my reporting on water in California, you know, groundwater was very important because people have overused it. And then in 2014, the state passed uh, the State uh, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Uh, so even more people started focusing on groundwater and I started focusing on that a good bit in my reporting. And it, so many water people, water experts, water scientists and policy people around the state um, who I contacted for interviews, they would tell me, oh, you should really talk to Graham Fogg. So eventually I did. And did you get to go out in the field with him at all or just interview him? 
Um, I have been out in the field with him, um, although uh, not while he was doing scientific research. Um, I have seen some of the projects that his students have worked on, such as um, one near the Kasumnas River, uh, where uh, a purposeful levee break, uh, you know, his students were measuring the quantity of groundwater recharge that that um, provided. So I've seen that in the field. And then on a different day, a uh, different year, actually, um, I went up to the Sacramento area and I met with Graham and he kind of took me around and showed me things in the area, uh, in particular, uh, a paleo valley that uh, lies near Sacramento. And tell me a bit about that experience. What was that like was for you to discover that these ancient uh, incised river valleys from the past are are these incredible uh, possible resources for storing water? Mm -hmm. Well, I learned about them long before I went out to meet Graham on that day. And, you know, I had learned about them from Graham. And I first mentioned them in an article in Scientific American in 2018. Uh, that was not the the focus of that article is groundwater storage more broadly. Um, so there wasn't room to really get into the details of the Paleo Valleys, but I was really intrigued by them. So I continued to uh, you know read scientific papers and um, talk to Graham Fogg and talked to one of his. Um, early students, uh, a guy named Gary Weissman, uh, who discovered the, the first Paleo Valley uh, in his grad, grad work under Graham Fogg. So yeah, I'd been doing all this research. Uh, I dedicated a chapter of my book to the Paleo Valleys, the hunt for the Paleo Valleys and, and the groundwater systems. And uh, then I had an excerpt in Bay Nature in January of last year, um, which like went into detail as a long feature story. And since then, I had a, an article in Scientific American uh, when one of Graham Fogg's colleagues at Stanford, Rosemary Knight, she was the lead author on a paper that, that Graham was also a part of. Uh, that documented how this technology of airborne electromagnetic imaging can, in fact, uh, create a very um, detailed 3D map of, of Paleo Valleys as well as other groundwater features. So my trip out uh, to Sacramento with Grant Fogg was kind of to get a sense of, uh, you know, who he was in real life and uh, to see the kinds of markers that uh, a paleo valley uh, might leave that would be visible to the eye. And um, they're there, but they're very subtle. Um, like, I don't think I would have been able to spot it even now, uh, you know, without Graham Fogg showing me uh, what was significant. Um, because, you know, they are primarily underground, but there are there are a few clues that are visible on the surface. Do you know who coined the term Paleo Valley? Um, I believe I did. Uh, the scientists actually call it incised valley fill. And, you know, I said to Graham Fogg, like, we, we can't call it that. Like, no editor is going to want to run that. No reader is going to want to read that. It's just, uh, it, you know, it sounds really, really wonky. And so I kind of pressed him and I said, you know, what else can we call them? So, um, yeah, I just felt like uh, Paleo Valley was something that 
would capture the public's imagination in in a stronger way than Insize Valley Bill. And uh, Graham Fogg uh, agreed that it was suitably accurate <laughs> for for use. Yeah, it's a good term. It, it definitely caught my attention. Okay, uh, last question for you. As you've done all this research and, and writing and reporting on these issues, um, you know, there are a lot of people who just want to see us, you know, let's let's build more dams and let's store more of this water. Um, what do you say to them based on what you know about why uh, storing water in reservoirs maybe is not as good an idea as storing it underground and perhaps in these paleo valleys? <laughs> So many reasons. Um, number one is that dams are an environmental justice issue. There was a 40-year meta study that looked at you know big dams on rivers around the world and found that they brought water to 20% of the world's population, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's population. Um, so you know it's not magic water, it's coming from somewhere. It's also coming from other ecosystems. Uh, so, you know, dams are really, really damaging to the river environment. We all know that they block fish, um, but they create all kinds of other problems, too, by interfering with the river's natural cycles uh, in terms of the the speed of the flow, the, you know, the slow phases, et cetera. Um, all of those are, are completely altered by the existence of a dam. Um, so it's a big reason why we have a, a massive crash in biodiversity. Um, you know, they have a dramatic impact on all aquatic life. And in fact, aquatic life is uh, suffering the largest declines of any type of, of critter in biology. Um, there's also something called sociohydrology. Uh, it's a field that studies how humans and water systems interact. And they documented something called the reservoir effect. And basically, um, people who can see a big reservoir of water sitting there take it for granted, and they don't conserve. And then uh, by the time a drought gets really, really dire, then it's a crisis situation. They've also documented um, the way in which increased water supply just increases demand. So it's just like the idea of when you build more lanes on the freeway to try to uh, you know, deal with gridlock and it just attracts more traffic. Again and again, when you bring in more water from somewhere else, you just encourage more use and more development beyond what the area can support. And then the reason why it's good to put the water underground is because the surface groundwater relationship is so critical to so many things. I already talked about how it supplies water to rivers and streams in the, in the dry season if you have a healthy uh, system. There's also a lot of important um, microbial and really tiny insect and, and worms and things like that who live in something called the hyperreic zone, which is right between uh, the surface water and the groundwater. Um, and they're very, very important uh, for the healthy functioning of a river. So there are all these things that are, are really complex that, that groundwater does uh, when it's healthy. And in our kind of willful misunderstanding of that, we've completely undermined and, and uh, degraded these systems. And so they're no longer working for us. So storing the water in the ground is a way that we can heal these water cycles and systems more broadly, and uh, they can work to our benefit in, in many ways. 
Erica, thank you so much for joining us to talk about groundwater and your association with uh, Dr. Graham Fogg. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks again to our guest, journalist Erica Guys. Now let's talk to the man himself. Dr. Graham Fogg is a professor emeritus at UC Davis in hydrogeology and one of the world's leading experts on groundwater. Graham Fogg, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. Good morning. Nice to be here. Well, you're an expert on on groundwater, of course. And uh, the first thing I want to ask you about is, you know, we've just gone through this incredible wet period after many years of drought. Uh, the last time we had rains like this in Northern California was five years ago, 2017, in a snowpack, anything like this. Um, what, what have been kind of going through your head? What have you been thinking about the last few weeks as you've seen uh, atmospheric river storms blowing in? Well, sometime after those uh, 2017 rains and floods that you just mentioned, uh, a number of people, including myself, started um, discussing and pushing the idea of something called FloodMAR, which stands for Flood Managed Aquifer Recharge. And the concept there is that with climate change, we are anticipating and indeed already experiencing bigger droughts, drier, longer droughts. And when we do get precipitation, it's tending to, to come in more intense storms. So wetter wet periods and drier dry periods. And the wet periods perhaps are, are, are getting shorter. You know, normally in the past, you know, before we started to see all these climate change impacts, the way water resiliency and storage worked in California was to harvest the snowpack. We have typically or historically enjoyed a thick snowpack. And that snowpack would melt um, mostly between April and July every year, the timing being perfect to fill up the reservoirs. Then it, during the winter time, when we had risk of high rainfall, big storms, high snowfall, that's when the flood risk in California is greatest. So the reservoirs, um, you know, in the winter would be used mainly for flood control, meaning you have to keep them empty enough to handle those, those floods. So now um, with, with warming and more rain on snow events and um, the droughts, that model is not working as well as we can remember based on our experience. The droughts um, only give us two or three years of water security before the, the, the reservoirs tend to be dangerously low. That is, you know, the, the reservoirs may fill up, but if we have more than a, a three-year drought, then we run into trouble. So the idea is, okay, so we may be getting, on average, the same amount of precipitation in California under climate change, but it's coming at different time periods. And kind of all at once. Kind of all at once and throughout the winter when it does come. And the normal model for capturing that water and storing it in our reservoirs doesn't work because more of the moisture when it does come is coming sooner when we need to hold the reservoirs empty enough for flood control. So the thought is then, well, where could we store some of that water? We don't need to store even a large percentage of it. We could store, say, 5% of the flood peaks from these floods and balance California's water budget in theory. 
the numbers would work for that. The problem is, where do you put the water? Well, you know, it, groundwater is part of the answer. Groundwater is kind of like the dark matter of hydrology. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's talk about that a bit, because I think most of our listeners probably are not aware of this, but if you take the entire amount of fresh water on our planet, isn't about 97% of it groundwater, underground water? Well, 97% of all liquid fresh water on right. Earth is Fresh water is what I was referring to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So uh, in terms of the terrestrial water cycle, groundwater is the biggest store. But it's also, we can only pump a fraction of that without causing you know, undesirable effects like effects on ecosystems or subsidence or chronically declining groundwater levels. So it's a huge reservoir. And partly as a result of that, and as a result of in the Central Valley in California, of an intensive exploitation of that water, groundwater, there's a tremendous amount of space in the subsurface in the Central Valley for storing additional water. How much space? Um, about three times the total reservoir capacity of all of California's surface reservoirs. So that's, that's something to ponder. If you're looking for places to put water, the big opportunity and the big place to put that is underground, typically. And that's especially true in the Central Valley. So the problem comes back to, okay, we're getting more winter runoff when we get rain. We don't have any place to put that now or not enough places to store it for the longer term. We have all this space and groundwater. How can we get at least some of that water underground so that we increase groundwater recharge enough to, to significantly improve our, our total water, water storage? And that's the concept behind Floodmar. How do you go about that? How do you actually you know, tell, explain to us how you would put the water in the ground? That's, that's running off currently. So, you know, we hear a lot of people complain about, oh gosh, all this water's just going out into the ocean. How, how, what are some ways that we could actually put the water into the ground and store it there? Um, that's where uh, this thing called managed aquifer recharge comes in. So, you know, whenever it's raining or whenever a farmer irrigates their fields, groundwater recharge happens. In fact, most of the recharge in the Central Valley uh, is now from irrigation which you know, can be good. It also can be problematic because of, of potential groundwater contamination from agricultural lands. But the, um, much of our resiliency of groundwater where it is resilient is, can be partly attributed to irrigation. So we know how recharge works, but it, it tends to happen much more slowly than say a surface reservoir would fill up. Groundwater moves relatively slowly underground, you know, a typical rate of water movement in an aquifer might be, you know, anywhere from, you know, inches per day to, you know, tens of feet per day. Really roaring flow in an aquifer might be, you know, 100 feet per day, something like that. So groundwater tends to move slowly, but there are places where the groundwater moves more rapidly and in turn can recharge more rapidly. And that has to do with the, the geologic structure or that the subsurface geology of these, these systems, which is predictable but complex. 
We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with UC Davis hydrogeologist Graham Fogg as we talk about groundwater. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's get back now to our visit with UC Davis Professor of Hydrogeology, Graham Fogg, as we talk about one of our most precious resources, groundwater. Let's go back in time, because it's not been that long, uh, especially in geologic time, it's less than a blink of the eye, that we have engineered all of these dams, you know, the Central Valley Project, the Bureau of Reclamation, and the Corps of Engineers building all these dams, Shasta Dam, for example, um, and all of the moving of water, like from the Owens Valley to Los Angeles, uh, the Central Valley Project, all of that. But if we go back in time, not that long ago, say to the time of William Brewer, you know, the 1850s, 1860s, back then, the valley was a very different looking place, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Well, um, the valley, the Central Valley, was 20% or so wetlands. There were vast wetlands and grasslands um, and riparian uh, woodland zone, riparian forests along the rivers. And of course, uh, uh, antelope and grizzly bear roaming the Central Valley floor. Um, wow. Today, it's um, probably the biggest landscape change on the surface is the, the change in the amount of wetlands, which has now dwindled to about 2% from 20% of the land area of the Central Valley floor. Well, so and I know in the in the southern change. in the southern San, jo San Joaquin Valley there, you know that was there was a huge lake there often in yeah, the winter. You know, that's right, Tulare Lake. Lake. Yeah, Tulare Lake is gone. Yeah, and that people think, oh, they agriculture drained the lands, and that's why the wetlands went away. Well, that's part of it, but really the bigger effect was um, at the mid part of the last century, uh, early to mid. Part, we started to have the ability to drill deep wells and to put powerful pumps powered by relatively cheap power. And so we're able to, to pump a lot of groundwater without many limitations. And so that groundwater production um, lowered the water table enough to, to eliminate most of those wetlands. Wetlands survive typically off of um, discharge from the underlying groundwater system. Mm -hmm. So that's that's part of the you know the groundwater's out of sight, out of mind, or it's the the misunderstood dark matter equivalent of of the hydrologic cycle. So I mean, when that happened, when people started pumping groundwater and the wetlands started going away, you know, in, in the 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 mid nineteen uh, hundreds, uh, that's when it you know it started. Um, you know, people weren't really paying attention; they didn't really notice, and they didn't fully understand what was happening underground. With, with the effects of that pumping. But it, of course, was, it was a huge change. And of course, all of those wetlands serve, serve a dramatic purpose in the, in the grand scheme of the, hydro, the natural hydrologic cycle that we have altered so dramatically. That's right. Yeah, the, the wetlands, um, they used to be thought of as, as you know, swamps that would, that would breed disease, malaria, and so forth. So 
at, at best of, a place to go hunt ducks. They were thought of as bad, yeah. And, and um, yeah, certainly they supported uh, huge amounts of, of uh, waterfowl and other fauna and flora. Um, so we call them groundwater dependent ecosystems. And that, that's, that has vastly changed. The other thing we have learned is that um, wetlands uh, have a tremendous benefit for water quality. Wetlands mm -hmm. are often called the, the kidneys of the ecosystem. Um, so an example of that is, you know, we have a fair amount of nitrate contamination from various land uses in the Central Valley, including urban and ag. And um, if the groundwater gets contaminated with nitrates, but discharges through a wetland, the wetland can remove a lot of those, those nitrates uh, or contaminants. So they're, they're like a great, awesome water filter. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. amazing. So tell us about, you know, your work as a hydrogeologist about, you know, working on what happened after the last few glaciations and say what what period of time we're we talking about that you've been studying that these glaciers have have created a very very special places where we might store this groundwater. Well, there've been a number of of periods of of uh, glaciations. Um in North America and the globe. And for example, I think a lot of people may have heard from their eighth grade science or, or you know, other um, science teachings that uh, there were times in the past when the northern part of North America was covered with uh, very thick ice sheets um, that advanced into the northern half of, of uh, the United States. During those times of glaciation, uh, mountain systems like the Sierra Nevada were high enough to also accumulate significant glaciers. Anyone who's been to Yosemite National Park may have visited the visitor center and seen uh, models there of uh, uh, reconstructing the ice sheets that uh, in the past filled up Yosemite Valley and helped carve Yosemite Valley and um, covered up most of the mountains there. So these were major ice features. The last, the most recent one uh, was about uh, 16,000 years ago. That's, that is the most recent glacial event where you had major glaciers that built up in the Sierra Nevada, especially the central and southern portions, because those are the, the highest elevations where the most snow and ice was able to accumulate. Glaciers build by um, year-to-year accumulations of snow that does not appreciably melt off. Um, so, and that indeed happened. And during those glacial periods, and for example, during the last one, 16,000 years ago, sea level dropped about 400 feet lower than it was today. Wow. So you had, um, you know, the, the rivers that drain through the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta and drain the Central Valley you know, when their base level lowers, when sea level lowers, and this is also affected by what's happening in the upper watershed, the rivers tend to downcut. That is, they incise deeper valleys. For example, on the, the Kings River in south of Fresno in the San Joaquin Valley near the Tulare Lake Basin as well, the Kings River incised about 100 feet in response to the, the, this glacial buildup and the lowering of sea level and the change in conditions along that river. 
then what happened uh, when the glaciers melted? What happens there? Well, the glaciers grind up tremendous amounts of sediment through natural geologic processes. That sediment, as the glaciers melt, is released into the channel. And as the glaciers are melting, the power of the rivers uh, becomes more stronger and more consistent. Think of a, a stream up in Alaska that's a glacial meltwater stream that's you know flowing at high rates 24-7 because of the, the glaciers and other wet conditions. So these rivers, as the glaciers melted, carried lots of sediment downstream, where downstream into the, the Central Valley. And those channels, those valleys um, that the rivers downcut, which were no, no small features. These were, you know, I mentioned 100 feet deep in the case of the Kings River on the order of a mile or more wide. Uh, so this is a major feature. Those valleys filled back up with very coarse material, sands and gravels. And normally people might think, well, so what? That's, isn't the whole aquifer system sand and gravel? Well, the answer to that is, is no. Most of the Central Valley aquifer system it's clay, right? Uh, consists of clay and silt materials. So these are finer grain materials that do not transmit water nearly as readily as sand and gravel. And these layers of silt and clay occur uh, in these uh, structures as if uh, the sands and gravels are sandwiched between uh, silts and clay. So if you're trying to recharge that system, most of what you encounter um, from the surface on down is uh, silts and clays. Central Valley Aquifer System, ironically enough, consists of 60 to 80% silt and clay. And those silts and clays, by the way, also store significant amounts of water and, and they, they take in water and they release water. But it, it, it creates a challenge for accomplishing recharge. We know we can inundate large areas of the landscape with water, like is happening now, say along the Kasumnas River and other rivers that have gone into flood. We can inundate large areas and a lot of that water soaks in and that's what we call recharge. And that, that's very beneficial. Well, let's talk about the, the structures though themselves and then we'll get into the recharge aspect and how you yeah. could go about that. Mm -hmm. So if it, those, those incised valleys, um, mm -hmm now are underground, right? Yeah, so what we have is um, in the places where the rivers incise, the major rivers that drain watersheds that were significantly glaciated all the way to the Sierra Crest, those river systems deposited these big coarse grain channels that, that scientifically we call incised valley fill. And in the popular press these days, the, the more palatable term is, is paleo valley. Um, so you'll hear these things called paleo valleys or, or incised valley fill. These are major coarse arteries. They do not locate where the present day streams are because these streams have moved around. Um, but in the Kings River fan case, we, we found one, mapped it, cored it, verified it, and understood geologically why it formed, and then uh, concluded that all the major alluvial fans, in other words, all the major rivers that drain the west side of the Sierra Nevada, 
at least in the central and southern Sierra, should have these features. And, and what are again, what are the features? Really coarse grain arteries of uh, aquifer material right below the modern soil. And why is that so important for recharge potentially? Well, when we want to recharge, it's helpful to find places where the aquifer system can accept a lot of water, where the recharge rates can be high. Our modeling studies indicate the recharge rates over these incised valley fill deposits could be about 60 times greater than elsewhere in the Central Valley. So finding these and um, leveraging their characteristics for recharge and groundwater protection is a worthy objective. And how, let me ask a, a couple of questions here together. How many of these um, Paleo Valley structures do we actually know about now and where are they? We know of um, at least three. I mentioned the Kings River fan, one that we mapped previously, and also recently worked with a group of colleagues at Stanford, um, Dr. Rosemary Knight, who's a geophysicist at Stanford, in her lab, and we also showed and published just in December that these are mappable through the use of airborne electromagnetic geophysics. And currently, the state of California is engaged in um, surveying the subsurface, helping to map the subsurface with the help of AEM, this, this geophysical technique. We found three. Uh, there's the King's one, uh, which we, we verified in multiple ways. And then there's um, looks like one or two in the Modesto area. And uh, we also found and mapped one in the Sacramento County area, south of the American River. That one had also been noted in the past by um, Roy Schleiman, who's a geologist, who's done ter terrific work in California. Um, we, we mapped it in 3D over, over a pretty big area. And then uh, um, that's where we've done a lot of our recent work on studying the, the potential recharge rates over these things. And could you explain to us a little bit about the actual geophysics of how, how you go about doing this? What is the technique that's used? Oh, the airborne electromagnetics? Y yes. It's a surface geophysical technique that is, uh, in essence, measuring and estimating the electrical resistivity of the subsurface from the surface on down to you know, possibly as deep as you know, 500 to 1,000 feet, depending on how you run it. The resistivity of the subsurface can be related to the sediment texture. That is, a, a gravel is more resistant to the flow of electricity than a clay is. So the, uh, the airborne one is typically flown from a helicopter, and the helicopter suspends this just giant tennis racket-looking structure that is actually you know, sending and receiving the the airborne electromag the electromagnetic signals that ultimately can be processed to, to provide an estimate of the depth and a spatial distribution of the resistivity of the materials. So people like to think of it as something like, you know, an X-ray, like we do of the human body. It's, it's not like that. But in some sense, it's, you know, it's a way of remotely sensing 
what is there in the subsurface. And then when we combine data like that with data that we get from wells that have been drilled into the aquifer system, and we, when we put those things together and do it in a context of the geologic history of the area, we can begin to you know, piece together the, the puzzle of what, what is there. Oh, that's fascinating. And okay, so you know of three, um, there must be potentially more. Yeah, we think there's probably a total of around a dozen or so. There may be more. Um, and it actually, with depth, there's more of those because there were multiple glaciations. But we're, right now, because of our strong interest in recharge, when it comes to these these big paleo valleys, we're most interested in the ones from the most recent glaciation. And why is that? Well, that's because those are right at the surface or right below the modern soil. Easiest to get the water into. And so it's like finding, you know, finding a main vein for intravenous injection. Yeah. Um, and uh -huh. the potential benefit of finding those is not only you could recharge at high rates over these things by building recharge ponds and so forth, you know, building up the head in those ponds and, and managing them on an active uh, basis to, to maximize recharge. But you can exert regional benefit. Um, that is these, these arteries, so to speak, or incised valley fill deposits, paleo valleys, are extensively interconnected and they provide these, these deeper pathways into the subsurface for making it so that the recharge you accomplish um, helps raise groundwater levels, not just where you recharge, but at, at significant distances away from the recharge, miles away from the, the recharge. So you, you, in essence, are, you can accomplish a, a partial repressurization of the aquifer system, kind of like, you know, the plumbing in your house, mm -hmm. the, the pressures are high in all the pipes because the pipes are all interconnected. And where are we at now? Like in, in California, of course, we've got the, uh, the Sustainability Act where we're trying to, you know, finally do some kind of management of our groundwater. Where, where, where are we at now with any, is there, are there any um, possible programs in the works to start to do this to, to you know, once you've found these uh, paleo valleys, to start to put water in there? Is there, are there, are there plans in the works to do that? Or is this just, you know, research that you've done and, hey, you could do this? Well, there's, there's lots of um, interest and there are, there are some plans that are, that are moving forward to divert flood flows onto, onto lands and to recharge. It hasn't gotten to the point of a really uh, regional planning that tries to coordinate these plans and initiatives with where the best places are to recharge. We do have good information from soils maps. There's a great soils mapping resource called uh, SAGBI, created by my colleague at UC Davis, Toby O'Gene and others. And that, that's important uh, for identifying just based on what you can see in the upper meter or two from the soils, you know, where the recharge rates could be higher. But those high permeability soils sometimes are underlain by, by clays. So it's important to have the soils information and the, the deeper information. So, what I'm saying is the, the connection between where people can get the water and put it on the land and where are the best places to recharge is, is still unfolding. Mm -hmm. The state is starting to 
catch up on its subsurface characterization in support of these kinds of things. And the, the initiation of the, the AEM surveys and the deeper geologic mapping is, is a positive step. Um, California Geological Survey now has a special unit that is, is pursuing a better geologic characterization of the subsurface in support of groundwater. So that, that's also a very positive step. I've, I've been advocating for years that the state needs a agency unit that has the, the mission of collecting, curating, and interpreting subsurface data in support of uh, groundwater resources. It, it has not had that in the past. Yeah, because you can't, you can't manage a resource if you don't know exactly what it is. That's right. Well, you don't need to know exactly what it is, but there's certain things that, that, that help a lot. You can't manage what you don't measure. That's, you know, one, mm -hmm. one good, good saying, but increasingly, you know, there, there's this tremendous potential for better managing groundwater. And um, I often say that we need to get to the point of developing what I sometimes call groundwater 2.0, which would be much more informed groundwater management where you know enough about the groundwater systems to manage them as well as we manage surface reservoirs. Now, surface reservoirs are comparatively easy to manage because you can see their boundaries, you can see how much water's there, you know how the water gets in and out. In groundwater, we're not to that point yet, but we could be. Well, Graham Fogg, uh, UC Davis Professor Emeritus of Hydrogeology, it's been really fascinating to talk to you about groundwater and where the best places to recharge it would be in these, these paleo valleys, as they've been called. Uh, it's been very interesting to talk to you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks to UC Davis Professor of Hydrogeology, Graham Fogg. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll hear about a very special tandem satellite system called GRACE that measures groundwater from space. And we're back to our look at groundwater. Our next guest is Felix Landrer from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Felix is the project scientist for the GRACE follow-on mission that's been monitoring our groundwater from Earth orbit. Felix Landrer, welcome to Blue Dot. Hi, thanks for having me. And, and you're actually, you know, the project scientist for GRACE follow-on, which is uh, like the, the current iteration of GRACE. Um, this mission's been around for quite a while, launched in 2002. Could you just give, it a, give us a really a brief description of how this works? Because it's basically two spacecraft in orbit around the Earth. Can you explain how GRACE works to us? Give us a GRACE 101. Sure. Well, GRACE and GRACE follow on the successor mission, which has been in orbit since 2018, are really uh, unique. They're two satellites, twin satellites. They're orbiting Earth in tandem, one following the other. And as they orbit Earth, uh, we essentially have kind of radar guns trained on each other between the satellites, measuring distance variations as they orbit the Earth. And... Um, They've been designed to measure very small changes in the gravity field of the Earth. So 99.9% .9 of the Earth's gravity field doesn't change from one month to the next. 
But uh, as everyone knows, Earth is a very dynamic planet. We have water, it rains, it snows, ice melts, and so on. So these small variations in water near the surface of the Earth cause small variations in the gravity field. And that's what we measure with those two satellites. Uh, the distance variations between the satellites, they're uh, just over 100 miles apart, are very small on the order of the thickness of a human hair. So it's an extremely precise measurement. And from that, we back out mass changes near the surface. Wow. And how, how big are the twin satellites? Uh, they're not that big. They're about the size of a small car. Uh, weighing just over uh, half a ton or so. So they're very uh, small satellite as satellites go. Not quite as small as many uh, small sats, but um, yeah, about the size of a small car. And how do they detect something like groundwater? What is it that that's happening to the satellites from Earth's gravitational field that gives you that signature of understanding what's going on below the surface with with water? Yeah, so it actually goes back to Newton. Uh, people might remember, uh, you know, Newton's law of motion. Uh, anything that has a force field uh, can uh, uh, generate an acceleration. So everything that has mass has gravity. And the two satellites that orbit Earth uh, are being uh, constantly accelerated or decelerated depending on how big the mass is underneath them. And since they're apart, uh, they might be accelerated uh, towards each other or uh, apart from each other. And from those measurements, we can back out what mass underneath must have caused that. And we do this measurement month after month. We make global maps. And then we essentially uh, look at the time series, how the mass has changed uh, from one month to the other over certain places. And we can detect changes in, in glacier mass, ice melt. We can detect groundwater changes, um, snow accumulation, those things. Anything that causes mass changes, if it's large enough, we can detect from space. So for example, like during the 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 drought that California and the West have been going through for the past 10, 15 years, Grace can actually detect how much, you know, the groundwater has changed and, you know, from pumping and all that. Uh, that that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's very amazing. Um, I mean, I've been working with this data for nearly 20 years and it still uh, amazes me every day I go into the office. The cool thing about this mission and this concept is that we don't need to have a, a line of sight to the water that we want to measure. We can measure underground water just as we can measure near surface water. So we essentially get total water storage. And in that sense, we're very unique, a very unique measurement. There's nothing like it. And uh, the application, the utility of this data is that we can combine it with these other measurements. We can uh, combine it with measurements of uh, snow, depth or water uh, mass, water levels and reservoirs. And then we can basically, like peeling away layers in an onion, peel away those other layers, the surface water, the river water, and uh, reveal how much groundwater there is. And uh, we do this over very large areas, yeah. And over over your time spent uh, on this mission on with Grace, uh, do you have any like highlight moments where you had an aha moment where you, you saw something in, in the data that was just unexpected and, or, you know, kind of made you think, wow, this is amazing to be able to get this information. Well, a lot of what we look at is, it almost looks like bad news, right? We track ice sheets declining, uh, glaciers melting, 
But we find novel applications of the data where we can detect ocean currents from space that uh, wasn't just possible. It's very tedious and laborious to uh, take measurements on the ground. Uh, and then if our data can aid other scientists, be they hydrologists or oceanographers in their data interpretation, that's really um, great and rewarding as we understand the Earth system better. And uh, now our data covers the entire globe every month, uh, land, ice, ocean, and uh, it really brings home the message that it's, it's an Earth system where everything is connected. The water cycle is global. We're impacted by uh, things that happen thousands of miles away and uh you know what what we do here impacts other people so if anything really that's that's kind of the the big picture uh you know message that we see in the data every day how things are connected it's amazing to think about being able to understand what's happening beneath our feet with our groundwater from space i don't, I don't think a lot of people are aware of that but this has just been an amazing mission do you do you know who who originally came up with this concept for this mission, the idea? What was the genesis of this? The original idea goes back to uh, the 60s and 70s, uh, where people started to think about this concept. And uh, there's a paper, I believe it was written in the late 60s, just outlining on a few pages, three or four pages, this concept. But it took many more decades to just develop the technology to measure these small changes, right? We need to track the distance variations between the satellites down to micrometers. So very small um, or uh, precision is required. So it's been around for a while, but uh, took many years to to uh, being realized. Uh, but we, we've had this measurement now for 20 years. We're working on the next mission. NASA has prioritized this uh, measurement, mass change, it's called, uh, for, for future uh, observations. We're working on the uh, Earth System Observatory, and mass change is going to be an essential component of that. So we can keep tracking uh, water resources. Uh, hopefully, we'll detect some groundwater and aquifer recharge as we become better at managing that resource. Uh, so far, we've mostly tracked and measured declines, um, but as we understand the data and, and the processes better, we can hopefully uh, turn this around. Yeah, it's just it it's almost mind-boggling to think that these twin satellites orbiting at thousands of miles per hour, those little tiny variations, you know, of distance between the two of them as they speed up and slow down their, their accelerations can tell us so much. It's just it's just it's fascinating. Thanks for sharing this with us. Oh, you're so welcome. It was a pleasure. It's great to talk to you, Felix Landrer, project scientist for Grace Follow-on. It's great to have you on Blue Dot. Thank you. Thank you, too. Take care. Thanks again to all our guests, journalist and author Erica Guise, UC Davis Professor Emeritus Graham Fogg, and Felix Landrer from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. 
Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. If you missed or want to revisit an episode of Blue Dot, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at blue.nspr. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. I'm Dave Schloem, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs>